morning, Deer Creek. Great to be with you this morning. Hey, uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We'll post it up here on the screen as well. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one on the next steps table on your way out, or you can run out there and grab one right now. Also, before we get started, I want to bring up just two things. First, our Christmas gift. So we intentionally do this every year. We try and raise money for uh, partnerships that we have as Deer Creek Church. And uh, our goal this year was to raise $50,000. We're uh, on our way there. We're at $18,000, which means uh, we had about $8,000 the first week, then about $10,000 this week. And we hope to reach the end of that goal uh, by the end of... Christmas, right? December 25th. So it's $50,000. If, if you want to give to that, we highly encourage you to do that. That's going to be going to help elevate Hope Centennial, which is one of our church plants. It's also going to be going to help one of our partnerships called Global Che in Guatemala. Uh, second thing is uh, just year-end giving. Um, we had a little bit of a shortfall in November. So if you're considering giving to Deer Creek Church, we would greatly appreciate that. Um, and, you know, we're, we're hopeful and expectant that God's just going to really bless our church during this Christmas season. Um, and we would ask, hey, do that out of an act of worship. So uh, if, if year-end giving is something that you do, we ask you to prayerfully consider doing that. And then last thing, I promise, and we'll get started, uh, Christmas Eve service. I'm sure it's on a lot of your guys' calendars. We have two options this year, an online option, which means you can join us online at 2 o'clock, 3.35, and 7. Or you can brave the cold weather. We're going to have an outdoor service here, and you can join us. We're going to have heaters, though. We're going to have fireplaces. We're going to have a fire pits, and we're also going to have um, a hot chocolate station. So you can come and join us for those at 4.30 and 6 p.m. It should be really great, so I encourage you to invite your friends, invite loved ones, people who don't know Jesus. Uh, bring them. Come and worship with us, and we'll celebrate the birth of our Savior. So with that, what we're going to do is we're going to read, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive right in. So if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 1, we're going to be looking specifically this morning at verses 67 through 79. This is the Word of God. And speaking about John the Baptist, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear." in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace." is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this Christmas season. Thank you for a chance to gather now. And God, we pray that you would send your spirit among us, that you, Holy Spirit, would help us to open our minds. Would you remove distractions from us so that we can hear and be attentive to this message that you give us? Would you firmly fix our eyes as well onto the content of this message, which is Jesus 
And God, we pray that you would fill us with the same sort of praise at this message that Zechariah had here in singing this song. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Christmas is upon us, and I'm sure many of you have many debates about when Christmas songs are actually appropriate. Uh, My wife and I have uh, debates back and forth of when is it appropriate to actually start playing Christmas songs. I confess I'm a Scrooge, and I do not allow Christmas songs until Black Friday. It's just a firm and fixed rule. Thank you. Thank you, one person. (laughs) Hannah, my wife, complete opposite. If it were socially acceptable, she would start Christmas music in June. Yeah, thank you again, one person. Uh, But it's not socially acceptable, okay? It's not socially acceptable. But for Hannah, I get it. It's very nostalgic for her. She loves Christmas music because Christmas music for her is like Amy Grant, it's Mariah Carey, it's Whitney Houston. (laughs) I like this already, all right. Uh, But, uh, and you know, she also likes the Christmas carols too. And you might have been a little bit confused diving into this passage, but what we just read was actually a Christmas carol. It was a Christmas song. And as with all Christmas songs, right, you have the good ones and you have the bad ones. So on the good end of the spectrum, we have Zechariah's prophecy. We have ones like we just sang, you know, come thou long expected Jesus. That's one of my favorites. Then you have the really bad ones, right? Like Alvin and the Chipmunks Christmas song. (laughs) Even playing that half a time is one time too many. And if you're familiar with the Bible, right, songs are throughout the Bible, and they always come at key moments in the Bible when God acts powerfully. So, for instance, Moses, right, God's deliverer of his people out of Egypt, after they deliver God's people out of Egypt, the first thing that follows is a song of praise to God of his powerful act to save his people. Or when Solomon, who was the king of Israel, built the temple and God descended into the temple, Their first response was singing a song of praise to God. And then if you followed us as we preached through the book of Revelation this year in 2020, you saw stitched together in the book of Revelation is song after song after song. Revelation 4, 5, 11, 15, 16, 18, and 19. Almost the whole book is just finishing off with one great song of God's powerful deliverance of his people. And the point being this, when you read the Bible and you see a song, it's the author's way of saying, listen up. Listen up. Because when a song comes in the Bible, it often marks a key, powerful act of God. So it shouldn't surprise us then that Luke, at the very beginning of his gospel, he actually starts with two songs. He starts with the song of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus. And then what we just read was the song of Zechariah who is the father of John the Baptist. So it's a marker that Luke is saying, listen up, because God is about to act in a powerful way for his people. And we just read the passage, right? But I want you to notice two things. I'm just going to give you kind of two preliminary things before we dive in. The first is that in this song is Uh, packed with Old Testament references. The song is only 12 verses, but there are over 33 direct quotations or allusions from the Old Testament. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is that God is bringing together all of the Old Testament and compressing it into this song. I like to think of it as kind of like keystone moments. You know, we all have certain moments in our history, in our past, that are kind of, you know, keystone moments that 
are really important in our lives. So for instance, for me, you know, I think of the wedding day with my wife, Hannah. I think of the birth of our son, Eli, the announcement of our daughter, Lainey, and then kind of the mild heart attack that I had when we were told we were having twins. So there are these keystone moments. We all have them, right? It's the same thing with the people of God. The people of God had keystone moments, what the Bible calls covenants, times when God actually descended and made special promises to his people of a coming, powerful Savior, what the Bible calls a Messiah. And so what Zechariah is doing is he's taking these keystone moments from the Old Testament, pulling together verses and passages, and he's compressing them down into one 12-verse song that just pours out of his mouth. As one author put it, embedded in this song of Zechariah is every hope, expectation, and anticipation of God's people throughout time. I love that. And I couldn't agree more. So that's the first thing we notice, is this Old Testament anticipation. But the second thing we notice is this song isn't about who we think it should be about. What do I mean by that? Well, you have to remind yourself of who Zechariah is and who his wife Elizabeth are. So for instance, we hear about Zechariah right at the beginning of Luke's gospel, and we're told this. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So that's Zechariah. Zechariah is a righteous, devout priest from the tribe of Aaron. And his wife, Elizabeth, is also from the tribe of Aaron. This is a prestigious couple, but there's a dark side to their story. See, because what we also read is that Elizabeth is barren meaning she can't have a child, so they're childless, something that would have been very shameful and brought dishonor on their family. And we're told that they're advanced in years, which means they're probably in their 70s or their 80s, which means the likelihood of having a child is but zero. So that's Zechariah, and as their narrative unfolds, Zechariah is visited by an angel. He's visited by an angel who comes to him and says this, "'Do not be afraid, Zechariah.'" Do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, for he will be great before the Lord, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Remember that. In the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And if that's the sort of thing that you find, you know, hard to believe stories about angels and miraculous births, then you're not alone because Zechariah couldn't believe it either. In fact, his response to this is, how will these things be? this signal of disbelief, and for his disbelief, the angel that had visited him actually strikes him and he's unable to talk for nine months. And now I want you to think, if you couldn't talk for nine months, what would be going through your mind? Well, I have to believe that for nine months, 270 days, three trimesters of Elizabeth saying, honey, you know, it's hot in here. Honey, I want cheese. I'm craving cheese. It's always cheese, by the way. I don't know why it's always cheese. 
Honey, I have to go to the bathroom again. I have to believe that for those nine months, turning over in Zechariah's head had to be the words of this angel. Because remember, Zechariah is a righteous man. He's a devout man, meaning he knows his Old Testament. And he knows these things that the angel told him were not new. In fact, the very last words that the Bible of the Old Testament, God tells through his prophet Malachi are these. Listen to what God told his people. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So do you see? Remember that word Elijah? See, the last words revealed by God in the Old Testament are the first words of announcement to Zechariah in the New Testament. In other words, Zechariah had to be thinking, right, for nine months, my son John is the one Malachi talked about. He's the one coming in the power of Elijah the prophet to prepare God's people for the great day of the Lord because God is sending his king. He's sending his Messiah. All of the keystone moments of the Old Testament are coming to fulfillment and he sees it in his son John. But notice who Zechariah sings about. He doesn't sing a song about John and the miraculous deliverance of God giving him a son. No, he sings about the one that's coming behind John. He sings about Jesus. He sings about the coming powerful Savior of God's people, the one in whom every hope, every anticipation, every promise of God is fulfilled in. So Zechariah is saying, listen up. Listen up. And he gives us kind of two stanzas in this song. Two stanzas in this song. The first stanza says, listen up. As he sings, listen up, Jesus is God's promised king. Verse 68, we see that. Zechariah begins his song, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Any Lord of the Rings fans in here? One? Okay, man. All right, well, the Lord of the Rings movies, if you've seen them or if you've read the books, right, really the first two books are really just teeing up the final book, which is entitled The Return of the King. The entire first two books are supposed to get you in anticipation to wait for the true king, whose name is Aragorn, the rightful king, to come and take his rightful throne as king of Gondor, to reclaim the throne that's his, and to bring healing to the people around him. And that same anticipation that you get when you're watching those movies or reading those books, that same anticipation is exactly what the people of Israel would have felt on the eve of John's birth. See, what Zechariah is referring to in the opening of these songs, when he talks about this powerful salvation that's about to come through this one king, that's what Zechariah is talking about in verse 69. He says, a horn of salvation has been lifted up in the house of David. Now, a horn, right, that's not a trumpet, it's not a trombone. Instead, a horn is a symbolic way of talking about a powerful animal. 
a powerful bull or an oxen. It's a way of talking about a great power that's being risen up, and it's usually associated with kings. So when he's talking about this horn, he's saying a great and powerful king is rising up for God's people. But notice he also says it's coming out of the household of David. What does that mean? Well, what Zechariah has in mind here is a promise that God made to King David nearly 1,000 years earlier. And if you remember the story, right, David is king of Israel. He's in Jerusalem. He's conquered all of his enemies. And finally, once he has some peace and he's sitting on his throne, a thought comes to his mind. He says, I'm going to build God a house. God had built up his kingdom. David had built up his kingdom, defeated his enemies. And he's thinking, I'm going to build God a temple. Because God's just going along inside a tent at this point made of animal skins. And finally he says, I want my God to be praised and adored just like these pagan nations around me. So he's going to build this glorious house, this glorious temple. And David at this moment, he's visited by a prophet whose name is Nathan. And Nathan visits him and he has these words from him. They come from 2 Samuel. He comes and he says this. Nathan approaches David and says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you, David, who shall come from your body. I'll establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So what he's saying is one day, David, you think you're going to build me a house? No, I'm going to build you a house. In other words, I'm going to build you a dynasty, a household. Kings will come from you. And one day a king is coming who will be my son, and he's going to establish an eternal kingdom. And as, you know, the Old Testament plays out, remember this was the year 1000. In the year 800, 700, Isaiah the prophet comes by and he gives us more clarity on what this means. And then Jeremiah comes by in the 6th century and he tells us more about who this king is going to be. And then finally, Ezekiel, one of the great prophets as well, comes and he is looking out over his people. And God tells him, go speak to my people. And he's looking out over all of the kings and princes and the rulers of the land. And God says, as I look at these rulers, they're worthless. He compares them to shepherds who fleece the sheep and take their food and destroy them and sell them off to foreign enemies. And so God says, here's what's going to happen. I am going to come. I will be my people's shepherd. I will seek them out. I will rescue them. I will feed them. I will rule over them. I will, I will, I will nearly 25 times. God says, I will rule over my people. And then he says at the end of this prophecy, Ezekiel 34, verse 23, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. So you have to start asking, who's this king? Is he God or the son of David? And the answer is, what Zechariah sees, he's both. Remember Zechariah's song, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He, the Lord, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. That's who this king is. This king is not just the son of David, he's the son of God. He's not just human, he's divine. 
He's truly man, truly God. That's who this divine Messiah is. The return of the king is the return of God himself in human flesh. That's what Zechariah sees in the birth of his son John, that this promised king is coming. And I love verse 71, what it says that this king will do. This applies to all of us. He says this king should come, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, in the Old Testament, the enemies of God, those who hated the people of God, were foreign enemies. They were political and military, right? There were the Assyrians and the Babylonians who would come, and they'd destroy the land. They'd come and invade and destroy the harvest and pillage cities and rape the women. And then in the first century, during the time of Jesus, they must have thought, oh, our enemies are Rome. It's Caesar. It's Herod. Today, we think, well, it's an opposing political party, or it's a foreign political power, or it's an ideology, it's this person at work who has something against me, or it's this person or that group of people. But as the New Testament unfolds, as we move in, we realize that the enemies of God are not political, they're not military, they're not even necessarily human. No, in the New Testament, we see that the enemies of God are dark spiritual forces more powerful than anything that this world can throw our way and they're waging war against us as we speak. Don Carson, he's a New Testament scholar, writes, quote, God's enemies are everything, everything that is bound up with the curtailment of, the enslavement of, the destruction of, the soul-destroying wickedness of God's own covenant people. Namely, however, God's great enemy is the devil who works through the sin and destruction and death of God's people. That's our greatest enemy, the devil himself. And I know full well there are many people here who probably treat the devil with some skepticism. Probably sounds a little bit far-fetched. I was actually on the phone, a phone call with a friend of mine from Tennessee, a friend that I went to school with, and I was telling him how I had recently moved. He moved to Littleton, and he said, where have I heard that before? I've heard of Littleton before. He'd never visited Colorado. He said, I've heard of Littleton. And I said, yeah, Columbine, Columbine High School. And he was silent on the other end of the phone. And I want, to, I want to ask you, I want you to consider, when you think about Columbine High School, when you think of the pain of that moment and the evil that was brought forth in Littleton, can I ask you, is the explanation for those events purely a discussion about mental health or gun legislation, as important as those things are, do those really get to the root of what happened on that day, or is there something much more dark, much more sinister? Can we honestly say that better health resources, mental health resources, will get to the root of that problem? You see, Jesus said that Satan is a murderer and a liar. He calls him the murderer from the beginning. It's interesting that we would dismiss Satan out of hand when he might be the best explanation for what's wrong with the world. And it's important to talk about Satan, right? When we talk about him, his kingdom of darkness, it's not just manifested in these unspeakable evil acts like Columbine, no. He actually has another game. The devil doesn't need a fantastic display of evil. All he needs is one inch of darkness in your heart and my heart to gain territory for the kingdom of darkness. And you'll notice this over Christmas, right? As you gather with family, see Satan, all he needs is this little inch because he's content to nurture little by little that sense in your heart where you think 
you know what? I always forgive my spouse first. I always forgive them first. They never say that they're sorry to me. And I'm going to wait until they say sorry to me before I say sorry to them. Anybody ever done that, by the way? See, that thought, that inch, right? Satan is ready to capture that little by little until we are so fully filled with resentment toward our spouse that we're unable to actually love them and forgive them anymore until all of our focus is on how they don't forgive us, how they don't care for us. Satan's content to nurture little by little that sense inside of you when you're with your sister or your brother-in-law or your aunt or your uncle and you say, how can we always talk about them? How can we always do what they want to do? Right? And little by little... Little by little, finally, your focus is so completely on how you're a victim, how nobody cares about you, that you're so focused on yourself, you're completely unable to love the people around you and love the God who saved you. And you're content little by little, right? Satan does this. He makes you content little by little to nurture that sense inside of you as well that says, you did that again? You're still doing that habit? God's never going to forgive you for that. You'll never change. Yeah, Satan's content to nurture those little inches in our heart and subtly turn that inch into a yard until his kingdom of darkness, bit by bit by bit, pulls us into hopelessness and despair and ultimately into death itself. So that's our enemy. And you can see why Zechariah is so overwhelmed with the goodness of this salvation that he says. You know, we don't say this very often, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, partly because that sounds weird, But think of the thankfulness, the gratitude that's on his heart because he sees the king returning, the kingdom of light penetrating. And that's why Paul can write in these almost fantastic words, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, these fantastic words. He says, for he, speaking of Jesus, must reign until he has put enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. That's what Jesus came to do to destroy the enemies of God. Verse 72, why did he do it? Why does God decide to return and to destroy our enemies? Well, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to his father Abraham. In other words, God comes in human flesh in Jesus, namely to demonstrate his mercy, to demonstrate that he is a merciful long-suffering, caring, and gracious God who loves people who are sinful like us. He comes to show the mercy of God and destroy and expose the lie of Satan who says, God's too harsh. God's too judgmental. God doesn't want to forgive you. God can't help you. God can't change you. You're a victim. People should care about you more. No, God comes in Jesus as the returning king to demonstrate his mercy because the reality is, friends, Satan is not the only enemy of God. We are. We are enemies of God. I find it striking. Jesus, he's gathered around all the people of Israel, right? All these people that are following him. And and they're saying, hey, we're children of God. God loves us. We're God's children. And Jesus says something very striking to them. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. 
Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do what your father desires. He's a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. You know, I'm often asked, well, if God's so powerful and evil exists, darkness exists, why doesn't God just destroy all the evil? And my response is always, if God destroyed all the evil in the darkness, what would that say about us? What would that mean for us? Because what Jesus says is, our hearts are filled not with just an inch of evil, but that we actually are born into this world, not children of God, but we are born children of the evil one, a part of the kingdom of darkness, not the kingdom of light. So God, in demonstrating his mercy, came not to redeem righteous, virtuous, good people who are part of his kingdom already, his children already. No, he came to pillage and take from the kingdom of darkness to bring enemies like us into the kingdom of light to demonstrate his merciful character. There's a woman, her name is Jill Foster. Jill was a a wife of a a good guy I worked with in Nashville whose name was Jack. And she said when she was in college, she was exploring Jesus and she met a campus minister and they were reading through the Bible together. And uh, Jill was, you know, going through the book of John together. And one day she said, I want to do this. I want to become a Christian. I'm tired of the life I'm living. I want to change. I want Jesus to change me. And so the minister said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and I want you to think from as early as you can remember till even today, I want you to write down every single sin that you've ever committed. This is a discipleship like intensive here. And so she goes home and she starts thinking and writing them down. And she's literally filled with fear and trembling because she's writing down things that she's never exposed to the light before. And she brings it to the campus minister the next week at a coffee shop And she thinks they're going to read through them line by line. And instead, he takes out a red marker and he puts a big red cross on the front page, crumples it up and throws it into the trash can. And Jill says, it was at that moment that I realized that God is not out to get me. He's not out to expose me. He's not out to keep me where I'm at, but he's here to show me he's merciful. He's merciful. That God does not give us what we deserve And it's true for everyone who submits to this King, this Jesus, this merciful God. God pardons our sins because he punished them on the cross of Jesus. And the second thing we see, why God, why God sent Jesus in the flesh from the line of David. He says, verse 73, to fulfill the oath that God swore to our father Abraham. And what that means is that God came not just to fulfill the keystone promise given to Israel through David, but one that he had given 2,000 years before to Abraham as well. Abraham, who was the first convert to God. So what this means is that Jesus is not only God's promised king to Israel, but to the world, to every tribe 
tongue, nation, and people group because the promise to Abraham was that God in him would send a savior, a Messiah in whom all the nations would be blessed. All nations. That's why we sing this time of year, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing because God is making a family from every tribe, every tongue, every people group that we can imagine. We were recently on a Zoom call with people who work with MTW, Mission to the World. And we were on calls with people who were from India, people who had experienced church planting in Japan, people who were doing church planting works and evangelism in the United Kingdom, in Madagascar, in Mexico, we heard works about, and us in North America. And we all experience this, right? We know people, we know people who come from different histories, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different cultures. And despite all these differences, we all believe in Jesus because of a promise God made to Abraham for thousand years ago because God is keeping his promise to make a kingdom not just of Israel but one day Jesus will come and every knee will bow every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord that was his covenant oath to Abraham so his final stanza Zechariah says listen up Jesus is king of creation He's king of all human flesh, and every knee will bow to him. And so as he closes his song, Zechariah looks at his son, the son that has just been born, John the Baptist, and he says, And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Why? Because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our way in the way of peace. You're always told, right, in English composition in high school, don't mix metaphors because it makes your people confused. Well, we have a horn who's a king who's bringing light and he's a sunrise. Makes no sense. But it's not without precedent. Actually, what Zechariah is doing is he's pulling again from Malachi. And Malachi said these words, For those who fear my name, the Son, S-U-N, not S-O-N, S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. Jesus is the rising sun over the kingdom of darkness, bringing healing to everyone who would come to him to find salvation. And he promises to crush the enemy of sin in your life. He promises to crush the hold of sin on your life and actually change you more like himself. Jesus is far better than, you know, the king of Gondor who brings healing. No, Jesus gives us a healing that will last into eternal life. And this idea of sun bringing healing, by the way, Malachi actually has something in mind. People who have tuberculosis consumption... The old healing trick for them was you would put them out in the sun and they would just bask. Winter, summer, spring, fall, it didn't matter when it was. You just sit there. And the best healing is to do nothing, to sit and bask in the healing rays of the sun in order to heal the venom that's killing you slowly inside. Well, 
Jesus has come to bring healing from the sin inside of us all, to capture us back from the kingdom of darkness and to defeat death once and for all in his death on the cross. Now you know why we sing, hark the herald angels sing, because the son of righteousness has risen with healing in his wings to give us all eternal life. And he will come again. And when he does, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he's Lord. That's our king. Let's receive him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great gift of your son, Jesus Christ, the one who is risen with healing in his wings. God, we need to be healed. I need to be healed. There are many here I know who need to be healed. God, for those who do, I pray that you would bring healing. I pray that you would lead them in the way of peace. Would you lead them in the way of light and snatch them out of the valley of the shadow of death? God, there are many valleys that we live in. This year has been one that makes us weary, and we are a weary world. God, thank you for this son of righteousness. And I pray, God, that this sun would shine in our hearts as we go about this Christmas season, and that we would hear these words of Zechariah and we would sing with him, that we would listen up and we would sing this song in praise to the king who's finally come. And God, we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would help us sing to you now as we sing these great carols, that we would lift up our voices and praise you, the one who is tender in mercy toward us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, by your spirit. Amen.